guys can start whenever. Hello out there. This is Joseph Rigazio with Taliesin Construction, and welcome to another episode of Taliesin Talk. Today we have with us Jason Kroger from the office leasing team at Cushman and Wakefield. Jason being the guy that is at the front lines and representing clients as they search for space throughout the boroughs is really seeing what the sentiments are and what changes are, and I think we're going to have a, a nice discussion today. So, Jason, welcome. Thanks for having me. So, let's jump right into it. Um, we see a lot of things happening today with cross-movement from boroughs to boroughs. It's, it's quite exciting. As far as the here and now, where do you see some of the strengths within boroughs, or what kind of shifts are, 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 are currently uh, in the air? Sure. So you know, really what I think has been the focal point for you know, not only early-stage companies but Fortune 100, 500 companies is talent. You know, how do you get access to the budding talent pool that exists in New York City? Um, you know, everyone graduating from school is going to this city as a hub to either focus on coding, marketing, sales, uh, engineering, you name it. Uh, you kind of get your pick of the litter when you come here. Um, and really what they've been focused on is not using space as, you know, just a place to work, but as a talent retention tool. Um, and how do you do that? I think the best way to think about it is how do you get people to never want to leave work? You know, Facebook, Google, all these big companies have perfected the way to keep people there 24-7. You know, whether it be providing them with food all day long for free, cars in and out to get to work, to go home. Um, but I think the, what they do best is create an environment that w enables people to say, I can be here for 18 hours, 12 hours a day. Um, whether you look at that in a positive way or a negative way, I'm sure it depends what side of the table you're on. But you know, what people are chasing now is how do you mimic that without having maybe perhaps the large balance sheet that a Facebook and a Google has? Yeah, that's, that's the biggest challenge out there, right? Knowing your competitors and how deep their pockets are when both sides are all at war relative to talent acquisition, attract and retain. Um, are you seeing anything different from where the talent wants to be? I mean, years ago, it was, I don't know, Soho, the, the village area, and that was hip. And, and now I'm hearing uh, yesterday was Brooklyn, and today is Long Island City. But I'm a little bit of an old fogey guy, so I don't know what the real hip uh, trends are. Uh, what's happening there? So I, I think you're, you're spot on. Um, Soho, Chelsea, all those areas are still extremely hot, probably the tightest markets in Manhattan, maybe even perhaps the world right now. Um, what you're seeing is as these companies that start very small with maybe 20 people in Chelsea, and they just got their recent round of funding, and they're going to be maybe 200 plus, it's, it's a flight to quality. Um, and where do you find that for an efficient cost and price structure? You know, you're looking at areas like lower Manhattan, where you're looking at a Class A building at the World Trade Center that might be 60 to $80 per square foot uh, versus going to Hudson Yards that you're crossing thresholds over $100 per square foot. 
Um, so it's really these companies that are in the Soho loft style buildings that, you know, it's your quintessential high ceilings loft style building. Um, but you're at a inflection point where you're kind of flocking to quality. That's something that we've seen. And are you seeing the Soho to Long Island City? Type we're of movement for those 20 seeing, to 40 employees going to 100? Or are they going to go to the $100 a square foot and be three blocks from Penn Station and in the coolest, newest uh, digs in Manhattan? So we're seeing, if it's Soho or Chelsea, and again, look, it's hard to just put one spot that everyone's migrating to. Um, I would say if it's Soho or Chelsea, you're really looking at lower Manhattan or perhaps Brooklyn. Because you have a lot of people that are now living in Williamsburg, living in Brooklyn Heights, Carroll Gardens, Park Slope, um, that are CEOs or C-suite executives that have a family, for example, but necessarily their employees do not. Um, so they live in these areas that are a little bit more residential. It's not the bustling city. So they're looking to move their companies closer to them. Hmm. Um, I, I don't think we've seen yet the migration of the technological companies moving to LIC just yet. Um, obviously, Macy's just took down almost an entire building there. Um, you had the Amazon debacle that happened. That that would have been kind of its mm. catalyst to really invoke those sort of companies continuing to go there. Um, but I think in terms of people migrating from Manhattan, if you're doing it to do something cool or create an edge, it, it's Brooklyn. Uh, and Brooklyn's a big place, so it could be Sunset Park all the way up to Greenpoint. Um, it's just where can you find quality space, and really where is your C-suite living, and is it convenient for them, and then is it well access to mass transit that gets the rest of your employees there uh, in a good and easy, efficient way. And and that makes a lot of sense. Um, so when, when you're representing that client that's making that shift, um, uh, Talk a little bit about maybe their knowledge, their demand, or do they even scratch at the real in-depth site selection analysis, the infrastructure that's there? Um, you know, how do they? They do this once a decade, maybe. So, talk to me about that. The 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 phases they go through and how much they should spend in that section of finding that new location. Sure. So, you know, I guess it depends on the size of the company. And then that kind of usually predicates their wherewithal on the real estate end. Um, you know, if you're a small to mid-sized company and the CEO is making most of the decisions, at least on the tech side, because I know you're a CEO mm -hmm. and you definitely have the wherewithal on the real mm -hmm. estate end, that's for sure. Uh, but on the tech side, you see, you know, we just need the space. We don't care how we get it. We're just going to do it. If it costs extra money, it doesn't matter. You know, we're not going to take and look at this from 30,000 feet. It's just, hey, we found it. Let's go and get it. Um, then you put the CFO hat on and you see, okay, well, we need to figure out how much this is going to cost. How much is it going to cost to fit out? What type of building is this? Is this an old warehouse that has not had a renovation in 15 years and the roof's leaking and we're going to go and put in $150 a foot to renovate it uh, and essentially improve the owner's building for free. He doesn't have to do or insert a dime into the building. Uh, or are we going to go and look at product of, let's say, an RXR uh, in the Navy Yard where they've spent millions and millions of dollars retrofitting the base building systems to get it up to a Manhattan quality standard 
and then invokes also a TI allowance when you're coming to them with a five to 10 year lease. Um, so it really, I think, depends on the, uh, where the company is in its business cycle. Um, but in general, what we've seen is they, our clients really look to us to figure out what is going on here? What are we getting delivered from a base building or as is when we go and lease this building? What are we getting delivered in terms of TIs? Uh, you see a lot of landlords now in Brooklyn, at least the sophisticated ones, uh, and also all over the boroughs. They're putting in, at least for base building work, 20 to $30 a foot, which gets it up to a certain standard. And then they're probably lending another 80 to 90 bucks a foot to get people to a turnkey office. Um, when you're kind of focused on a site that isn't necessarily owned by a sophisticated landlord, that stuff kind of just goes out the window. You know, you're dealing with someone that owned and operated their business out of there. We mm-hmm. call them uh, accidental landlords. Uh, and they're like, well, here's the rent. Here's the keys. You know, take, and- it, take it or leave it. And th- that's really it. So it's, it's really interesting when you're evaluating sites in the site selection process to really hone in on this owner is a well-institutionalized, capitalized owner that will be able to deliver the things that we look for when it comes to a building versus the owner that has one building. It's an industrial warehouse that hasn't been touched for you know, 15, 20 years, and you're going to have to come out of pocket for all these improvements. You might have really low rent, but once you invest all that money over the course of the lease term, you gotta once you net that up, you know, you're paying almost the same thing as if you were to go to the building down the block that's owned by, you know, an RXR realty. In the in the area of uh, tenant improvement, um flexibilities from the owners uh are we seeing a trend going in one way or the other, or it really does just depend on who is the owner and knowing what to negotiate based on who that owner is it, it really is case by case you know to what you just said uh, i think there's been a general adoption now that you know people don't necessarily look at things only on a 10-year lease basis anymore um you know we just represented a hr software company that has 60 offices across the u.s they will only sign a five-year lease and in that five-year lease they need to have an option to terminate that lease in year three so in a landlord's eyes are really only signing a three-year lease. Uh, they pay a premium for that flexibility, uh, and it becomes a negotiation point. But I think we're seeing more and more, whether it be accounting rules or just the way people are looking at businesses today, that flexibility is key, and you need to have that full and forefront in a negotiation. Um, and and how much did the um, the model of office sharing and where we works entered the uh, the picture uh, less than a decade ago um, and there are classical competitors of we works that was always there um, you know the last four or five years they started appealing to the fortune 50 corporations to solve what you just scratched at we just read in the news recently ibm is stepping back which is very interesting, and you know the the I don't want to really call it hype as much as the percent uh, what what has been written about 
in the magazines of construction and real estate in Manhattan shows that we work must be 50 to 70 percent of what's going on out there. We know that's not the case. So it's the conversation. It affects people. What has happened since before and then post-revaluation of WeWork when people are talking about short-term flexibility and long-term negotiation? Has the negotiation changed or not? I don't think so. Um, In terms of company to company, uh, if you're in good standing with your financials and it's just a matter of this is what you need to get a deal done, I think owners are still getting or staying creative. Um, what I think the WeWork situation has created now, not only in the real estate markets, but also the public markets in general, uh, is that these valuations of all these technology companies that you know we're seeing skyrocketing every day don't necessarily hold weight anymore. It's, it's not cool to lose money anymore. <laughs> so how that kind of ties back into the real estate side of things is I think now more than ever, landlords will be looking at the balance sheet looking at financials. And yes, if you want flexibility, you can have them, but you're going to pay for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't think they've tabled that or the WeWork situation has tabled those conversations. Mm-hmm. It's just that now more than ever, credit kind of holds more weight as opposed to just saying, you know, we can, we can reach your rents or what you want to get or achieve here. That's great, but we'd prefer someone that can do it for five years as opposed to six months. Yep. Um, no, very good. In- interesting times. Uh, that we've all been through in just the last six to nine months. Um, and we'll see the ramifications from that, I think, over the next year or two, how the debtors are going to now do due diligence. And the conversations are changing. Yeah, I the, mean... The I told you so's, I can't hear enough of them. I kind of <laughs> smile. They still added value and grew as an entity. They just well overshot it too much. Yeah, it was. If, uh, if they were never sixty billion and only ten, then you would say, "Wow, they went from zero to ten. They went from zero to sixty, then down to sub ten, and it kind of gives you a hangover." Futures, yeah. though, that's WeWorks. Uh, we've been in the New York real estate market forever for for some time. Um, past trends don't predict futures, but. Let's start talking about the futures. What are, we, what are people talking about in the next five years? Are things going to shift? Are we going to get more conservative? You know, are we going to go to the, how do I get more telecommuting happening? Or collaboration is going to come back the other way? Is it the offices in the center with the, the light in and, and common areas external? Is wellness going to be a factor? What type of lighting one has in there? The millennials seem to be asking for different things, I think. What's going to happen in five years? That's a good question. Um, I wish I could predict it, but I'll give you my opinion at least. Um, I think you're going to see a trend away from the open office. Um, We've already been seeing it. I think the breakout meeting room style office is what's been coming back. Uh, I think that's going to come in full force. People realize that, hey, look, me sitting with my headphones on all day because I'm surrounded by 100 people within two feet of me. I don't think that's a way to collaborate. Everyone said that the open office is a way to collaborate. Small, like intimate conversations, talking about ideas in a room that not necessarily everyone can hear about. 
that is what I think is going to drive productivity and drive businesses going forward. So I think that trend is going to continue, whereas we still want large open space, or at least the corporations do because it saves them the most money. But you need to also divvy up your space program in a way that has breakout rooms, smaller meeting rooms that necessarily you can have two, three, four-person meetings where if you're on a certain team, you feel like you have your own camaraderie in those. It's not just you know dispersed across an office with a sea of cubes or a sea of desks. I think cubes aren't even used anymore. It's really just bench seating. Yeah, and, and, I, and, I, and we're seeing that as well out there, the physicality of the layout. Um, and it almost seems like it comes full circle in a sense. Now enter in new technologies for lighting, for sensing. Um, you know, today's technology, and I know that privacy will be an issue to work with, but are your clients out there talking about spaces that come with already the technology infrastructure to know who's coming through common areas, uh, the lights are out when no one's there, uh, the conference room whiteboard is actually being used or not? Are those conversations happening out there yet? I, I don't think it's taken hold of everyone just yet. Um, you're really seeing the larger companies focus on it because it's a way for them to cut costs. You know, if you lease 70,000 feet and, you know, all of your conference rooms have the lights on at all times, your electric bill is going to be through the roof. So if there are technologies, which I know there are today, that exist that can mediate for that, you know, the larger corporations will be focused on it. Um, so it's really the ones that I think are more sophisticated on the real estate spectrum that are focused on it right now. Once there's a more perhaps efficient or cost-effective way to do those sorts of things, or perhaps you have landlords, when they pre-build the space, include those in that pre-built because they know that smaller companies don't have the wherewithal to do it. Uh, kind of how the pre-builds even just came, you know, really into fruition only maybe five, six years ago um, to accommodate the tenants that perhaps don't have the imagination or think about or want to manage a build-out. Um, yeah, Jason, um, uh, you just touched on something that, again, not to, well, to bring it up again, the whole discussion around the WeWork model uh, some people say that was the catalyst because of how aggressive they were at deploying money ahead to capture market share in the future than to make the model work, that it really got a lot of property owners, at least our classical clients, to think a little differently, to put monies in, show a little more common area, which they would never have done before, and put some dollars in place in what they used to call just a white box that started to add a little color than just the white box. I, I think that was based on the aggressiveness of the WeWork model. Don't know. I would hope that will continue, that the landlords, the asset owners, are thinking about constantly improving and not just leaving it up to the mid-sized company to figure it out piece by piece. Just a thought well, um, based on where we look at 
opportunities. Absolutely. What would be cool is, and I'm sure someone could do it, maybe perhaps Cushman, but looking at when we work started, which was about eight years ago, and then also the trend of pre-built units being completed. That would be interesting to run an analysis on. Yeah, I bet you there's a correlation there. It's got to it, 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 it be. Because, it makes sense. Yeah. That's, it may, every time when, you know, again, we've dealt with clients for over a decade, and the first five years, they wouldn't put a penny unless they had a suitor. And then a lot of times they may actually try to move as fast as they can to close out that project before that suitor steps in. It's kind of interesting when they're halfway through that project, the suitor comes in and then stops our project midstream. And then is it a TI and change orders or do we close this off and start another project? The fluidity is there, but it's nice to see the landlords belly up to get the product ready because there's so many clients out there that just don't see it. When they have 100,000 employees, they have a department that sees it. When they're under 50 or 100 employees, they just don't see it. So it's kind of interesting to see how they react when they sit down to that table to negotiate five and 10-year lease. It's a big number. Yeah, it's, I don't want to insult, not insulting any clients in case they're going to be listening, but there's not a lack of imagination, but I think it is, unless you do it every day like you and I, it's very hard to look at an empty space and envision what it could right. become. Right. Um, but that's just because we do it every day. Yeah. No, very good, very good. Um, <clears throat> other areas uh, relative to the ecosystems. Um, you have your architects, you have your engineers, you have your owner's reps, you have your property managers, you have your leasing agents and brokers, Jason. You know, you have your constructors, kind of <clears throat> the ecosystem that we have today and we had for some time. I mean, I, th- I see owner's reps coming, getting stronger and stronger over the last five years, they do provide a value when the big project's coming. When you're dealing early on, where, where is your client's uh, head with respect to having their team ready? Do you tend to have the architect there with you or they are going to come later on or who comes first? 